This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Tragic scenario. Boy, a lot of wacky things going on in the world lately. Uh, Mexico hit with an 8.1 magnitude earthquake. Uh, at least 29 dead so far. Uh, largest in uh, 100 years in this area. Uh, and of course, uh, we're still feeling, uh, they are still feeling the aftershocks uh, as well. To talk more about all of this, Rebecca Lee is with us, PhD student at McMaster University, Department of Geography and Earth Sciences, and is on the line with us now. Rebecca, thanks for taking the time uh, to talk to us. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, as they've said, this is the most powerful quake this area has received in over 100 years. Was there any indication there was coming? Was this expected at all? Um. It's hard to predict this type of thing. Uh, you sometimes see some uh, minor kind of tremors beforehand, but um, Mexico, uh, as well as our entire uh, West Coast, sit along different plate boundaries, so places where the, the two plates are coming together. And so there's always a concern that we're going to have earthquakes along this area. So, But it's, it's hard to predict this type of earthquake. These don't occur uh, very often. So the, it wasn't like there was rumblings ahead of time or plate, plates vibrating that sort of said it would lead you to think that something might happen? Um, not too much of that. Um, and there's often played with minor shocks, uh, stuff that we can't feel, um, kind of always in these areas that you just don't really think about. And so it's hard to predict um, when the kind of big earthquake is going to come and what, what exactly when that's going to appear. So... Uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things, right? So <laughs> you, you talked about the West Coast. Explain what is going on here and what what, what technically happened to cause this earthquake. So um, earthquakes primarily occur along boundaries between two plates. So we have all of the tectonic plates um, where we live, as well as the ocean crust, and all of that kind of moves around. And so areas where you're having the plates come together are areas where you have a lot of um, earthquakes occurring. So for us, in Canada, that's particularly in along the west coast near BC, because you have um, the two plates coming together and one goes underneath, and basically they're just ramming up against each other, and eventually, you know, something has to give, and so the Earth starts to actually move in response to it. Do, so that's actually what's happening in Mexico as well. It's two plates coming together. So do we? We have felt these in Ontario, have we not? How do you explain that? Yeah, um, we we do feel them. Um, Almost uh, the largest one we've had in the last 30 or 40 years in Ontario was only about a magnitude 4, I think. And so that's 10,000 times less um, like of a strong earthquake than what they experienced there. And um, these just come from little movements in the plates and little movements in the crust and uh, a whole, um, some of like the mantle, what lies underneath the crust causes it. So, but we, we are unlikely to have... a an earthquake of this magnitude in Ontario because we're not in the right area, so, geologically. So 8.1 for Mexico City. Uh, yep. For those who've never been through one, thank goodness, what would this feel like? What would this be like? And and how is this city even still standing? Um, an 8.1 magnitude, It's um, they often compare it to like 20 billion tons of dynamite going off. It's, it's very large. It's going to move the uh, move the earth, and you'll feel it vibrating. You, if you're in higher buildings, often it'll feel almost like a swaying feeling um, because it is literal waves through the earth. So imagine a, a wave on the ocean, but actually causing the earth to do that. Um, part of the reason it, it didn't take down the whole city is uh, it was uh, offshore. So right. it did occur offshore, which helped because the further you are from the 
what we call the epicenter, the where it started, the the lower um, you're going to feel it, the less you're going to feel it, mm-hmm. as well as the fact that it was a, it was deeper into the earth. So, how far uh, was the epicenter from Mexico City? Um, I uh, hundred kilometers. I'm sorry, I don't know right. the exact. And it was at, it was out at sea, was it not? Yes, it was off. Uh, yeah, it was in the Pacific, and so, so the. Uh, one of the other concerns that comes with that is uh, that of tsunamis, mm-hmm. because when the earthquake occurs, it actually moves the earth, which causes the water to be uh, like displaced and moved, and that can often result in uh, tsunamis, which is a concern that they have for Mexico. So uh, is there, since this did happen out in the water, uh, how big a concern is that for Mexico now? Um, they have put out a, a tsunami warning mm-hmm. um, already, and so they're fairly certain it will happen. And I believe they're predicting waves of a couple meters in height for Mexico. But often the tsunamis can be uh, uh, just as deadly or more so than the earthquakes. Uh, if anyone remembers back in 2004, there was a large earthquake off of the coast of Indonesia. And it was actually the tsunamis that um, caused a lot of devastation right afterwards. We remember that. So why, <laughs> w- why was that the perfect storm? Uh, and how come we're not seeing something similar here? Um, that had to do with where it was located. Um, it also has to do with kind of what the type of like rock is in that area, right. the the height of the, the the coastal cities, how many people are on the coastal cities. You know, there's just a a lot, a lot of things can impact what you're, uh, what happens. For an 8.1 earthquake so close to a major city like this, are you surprised that more damage was not done? Um, uh, not entirely because it, it was a little ways away mm-hmm. the epicenter was a little bit off as well as um, um i'm not sure about specifically uh, mexico mexico but usually when you're kind of within these earthquake zones or these areas with high earthquake you you do prepare your buildings to have right. some sort of ability to withstand that so uh what about aftershocks uh how damaging can they be and uh, how long do they us- usually last um aftershocks can occur for um, depends on exactly how the earthquake occurred. Um, so they can occur directly after or keep going for um, a couple hours. Uh, but um, they're most concerning for bringing down uh, buildings that are already quite damaged or if people start trying to go back into their homes and then, uh, you know, the aftershock comes and they're not expecting it. It can bring down uh, already uh, damaged uh, things or if people start going near things. So they're, they're a little bit of a concern, but people tend to know about them and get warned. So they're uh, less likely to be uh, overly damaging. They're also, aftershocks are always smaller than the initial quake. Right. So there's that component as well. But you don't have any way of knowing how long the shocks will last? Or like, would some earthquakes provide more, some less? Um, yeah. Uh, it really depends uh, on how, uh, because earthquakes are essentially, it's the two parts of the earth kind of rubbing against each other and how the energy is released can impact how long you're uh, going to have the aftershock. Uh, here's an unusual question from a listener. Solar flares, do they have any effect? Do they cause earthquakes? Um, have you heard anything of that nature? I, I, I have not. Um, the, it, earthquakes are usually caused by just a buildup of strain and stress right along that um, right along that area. So if you're thinking about when you're pushing anything together, you're creating that stress, and eventually it kind of just releases once the it, once it it's gotten beyond the point that the the Earth can handle. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if there's any relation to solar flares, to be honest. I uh, 
I, I would have to look more into that. But for the most part, uh, atmospheric conditions don't don't have anything to do with earthquakes, in, do they? In general, they don't. So I can't imagine it has more to do with how the the mantle, so the kind of the liquid part of the Earth right underneath the crust, it has more to do with how that's moving and how um, the, the two parts are coming together. But uh, you never know, right? <laughs> yeah, really. I, well, you know, there's a lot of people wondering what the heck's going on when they think of extreme weather that's happening in the world and now earthquakes. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people's imaginations start to run wild, Rebecca. Yeah, it's and it's a you know it's it's been a weird couple weeks with the with the hurricanes picking up this year. It's been a weird season, serious summer for us uh, here in Hamilton. The earthquakes um, often you'll get one of eight eight or larger, usually occurs once a year, once every other year. So they are relatively frequent. So it just depends on where they are and how deep they are as to whether we kind of pay attention almost. So if uh, this one happening on the west coast of Mexico, so if you're in California or Washington State or even British Columbia, are you thinking, man, the jiggle down there could set something off up here? Um, yeah, that's always that's always a fear. Uh, they'll for sure be feeling it into California, um, or maybe, but just not very much, just a little bit of a aftershocks. I mean, uh, uh, the the earthquake can travel quite far. There's, but um, there's always a, a fear that one will set off the other. But um. On the other hand, couldn't you look at it, Rebecca, in the sense that because one happened there, it's taken pressure off, therefore everybody's relatively safe for a while? Or can we um, assume that? Um, well, there's actually two different plates. So um, the West Coast is the North American plate and the Pacific plate. And down um, in Mexico is two different plates. I, I'm not sure, but they're, uh, they're actually two, they're convergent and yeah, so they're actually two different types of plates, so they, unfortunately, the shake here is probably not going to relieve any pressure off the other area. Right, I hear you. All right, so yeah. <laughs> that's wishful thinking then, I guess. Yeah, uh, how, well, you know. How long would these things last? Do they last roughly the same amount of time? Do some last longer than others? How long would this one have lasted? Any idea? The, the actual duration of the like, earthquake itself? Yeah. You know, we've had clips of people on the news here that, you know, being in buildings. Uh, we played a clip of the guy from the band Chicago was in a hotel 30 stories up, and it's swaying back and forth like yeah. he's on a cruise ship. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, well, so, yeah, it's, it's because it is a wave, right? It's, it's yeah. exactly like being on the ocean, um, except for it's, you know, the Earth uh, doing it for you. But, um, yeah, it'll... Um, so that's what it would like feel like. Like, a couple minutes. like if you're standing in the street, Rebecca, when this thing's yeah. going down, it that's what it would feel like? It would feel like a wave? So, um... It, it depends on a couple factors. Usually when you're on the ground, it feels more like shaking because you're kind of right in there. Right. But as you go up and you're in these big buildings, they kind of transfer the energy and make it into a right. wave as opposed to like a shake. So they say often when you're higher up in, a, in buildings, you'll feel it more as a wave because that is, in essence, what's happening to the earth. Yikes. Big waves. So and we talked about duration and I interrupted you. How long would they last? Um, a big ones like these, couple minutes, you know, 10 minutes. Little ones will last, you know, 10 seconds, 30 seconds. But uh, big ones like these can last quite a while. So how much of uh, a commotion is this causing in the world of your study? How, how, how big a story is this for them? Well, I mean, it, it just happened. And, uh, you know, research is always, uh, you know, we're, we're just looking at it now. So mm -hmm. um, it, is, it is in an area that we'd expect it. You know, it's right along that, that boundary between these two plates. It is an area that's had it before. So in 1985, there was a eight, a magnitude eight 
um, uh, earthquake right near Mexico as well. So it's an area that's had it before. It's an area that we'd expect it to be. So it's not, you know, changing too much yet for us. So really, in this case, uh, you know, despite, of course, the devastation and destruction and death that we're now hearing about, this yeah. th- there is nothing really out of the normal, uh, out of the ordinary for this earthquake. Um, n- not so far. Yeah. I, mean, I don't want to yeah, yeah. make a blanket statement, but, uh, you know, you know you. it is it is somewhere you'd expect it. It's happened there before in a similar way, so... Rebecca Lee has been with us, Ph.D. student at McMaster University, Department of Geography and Earth Sciences. Rebecca, thanks for the help. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. All right, take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've certainly talked a lot on this show about the minimum wage and it increasing and what the effects are on both the people receiving minimum wage and the companies that have to provide it. Uh, and, of course, you, the consumer, in the long run. Uh, now we hear news discount retailer Dollarama is eyeing the possibility of adding in self-checkout terminals uh, in stores as a way to offset the costs from higher minimum wage. Uh, is this a fair argument? Uh, where are they going to do this anyway? Uh, just this sort of uh, announcement speeds them up. Let's bring in Simon Black, assistant professor, Brock University's Department of Labor Studies, and is on the line with us now. Hi, Simon. Thank you for taking the time to join us. What's your reaction to this news? Are you surprised? I'm not surprised. Thanks for having me back on, Scott. Uh, I appreciate the way you cut through the BS uh, on your show, and this is one of those issues in which we need to cut through the BS. When we take a, a step back from what's going on here and look at the big picture, We see that we have an economy in which minimum wages are poverty-level wages, leaving full-time workers below the poverty level. We see broadly in the labor market stagnating wages, increasing job precarity, low-wage work is endemic, 47% of Canadians are living paycheck to paycheck. In terms of employment and income, today's young people, including my students, face a clear prospect of ending up worse off than their parents, the first time, first generation since the end of the Great Depression. And in that context, we have a movement of everyday working people, 15 in fairness, 15 in the union across North America, uh, who've tried to and have been successful in Ontario, lobby pressure governments to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and have tried in other instances to unionize large retail workplaces such as Walmart, Starbucks, McDonald's, and so on. Within that context, we're seeing a huge backlash by big business. The likes of Dollarama, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, uh, their intellectual allies and the corporate-backed think tanks like the Fraser Institute. You know, Dollarama's profits rose 24% last quarter, $131 million. Uh, there's a huge backlash against this movement and against the victory of a $15 minimum wage that the movement has brought about. So this 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 discussion now, Dollarama and uh, some other 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 big businesses, threatening to increase automation in response to a $15 minimum wage, which will be introduced by uh, 2019, is not a big surprise. It's part of the scare tactics uh, that big business have have been employing and will continue to employ uh, against this movement and the the victories that it's been able to bring about. Were were we all going this way anyway, Simon? I mean, this just gives them an excuse to speed it up a notch. I mean, again, as technology permits this, we've been seeing this for a long time. That's the other thing, Scott, that, you know, the the threat of robots taking our jobs has been made uh, for over 200 years. As long as capitalism has been around, we've been, you know, economists have been discussing the impact, the potential impact that 
that it, uh, automation is going to have on, on workers. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm still working at least 40 hours a week, and most people are as well. The famed economist John Maynard Keynes published an essay way back in 1930 called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. He thought by 2000 and, uh, 2030 we'd have eight times the living standard we had in the 1930s, and we'd be able to fulfill all our wants and needs with a 15-hour work week. You know, that's, that's not my reality, and it's not most workers' realities. I think the rhetoric now is, is ramping up. But, you know, the threat of automation to jobs, uh, the changes that automation um, will have on the labor market and on, on people's prospects in the labor market uh, are something that's been discussed long before, long before this movement for $15, for $15 and fairness in the workplace came about. Can so you think, can you stop right. can you stop can you stop um, progress though Simon can you stop technology can you stop automation the fact is we can just do things differently without the 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 the, the work that we did prior um, I, I mean that's how you advance society um, should we stall progress just you know to so everybody can keep using technology that's that's old as opposed to advancing them into jobs where it is. Um, I'll let you answer that, and then we'll talk about the minimum wage a bit. Sure. No, we and we can't. You know, governments uh, don't really have tools at their dis- disposal to to stop uh, private companies, private businesses, capital in general from from automating work. But the question, I guess, then gets back to to the matter of a fifteen dollar minimum wage. And whether that, whether an increase in the minimum wage actually leads to, to greater automation. And you can find studies um, on both sides yeah. of that. Uh, but what we do know uh, and what studies have been pretty clear, that one coming out of the University of California at Berkeley most recently, is that any, any minor job losses as a result of automation in response to an increase in minimum wage are offset by increased productivity and also increase aggregate demand in the economy. People living on low wages spend the money that is put in their pockets when a, when a minimum wage goes up. And that leads to greater demand in the economy, and it leads to uh, often an increase in, in jobs and a, and a more healthy labor market. The only way I see... In goods and services. The only way I see it helping everybody, and this is valid, I think, Simon, is that as soon as you raise the minimum wage, eventually the domino effect raises everyone's all the way down the line because they have to, because the person that was making $2 above minimum wage is now making minimum wage, and he, he doesn't want to be or she doesn't want to be making minimum wage. Uh, so, you know, lots of people would say, well, it doesn't affect things, but it does. But some may say in a good way because it increases all of our wages. But to say that, it, you know, it doesn't have a, a rippling effect, is that accurate? Yeah, it, it will have a rippling effect. And I, I, I think the movement it, it itself recognizes that. And that's why it's had the support of, of the labor movement and unions across Ontario, across yeah. You know, nationally and in North America in general. Why don't yeah, we yeah, just Why don't we just work at giving everyone a raise as opposed to, to to labeling this as a raise for minimum wage? And here and here's the discussion that I have a problem with, Simon. It's like how can we possibly arrive at what a, a good rate for minimum wage is when we can't even define what a minimum wage is or what it is for? Um, you know, in, in, in my day, a minimum wage, I, I, I pushed a broom around a Woolworth store, emptied the garbage and washed the floors, and I got paid my minimum wage. I never once thought that 
I would have to raise a family on that minimum wage. It was a way for me as a 16-year-old to get into the job market. Now people are saying that uh, the, the role of the minimum wage has changed. It's not an internship. It's not a first job anymore. That, that, that people are making a, a living on this. Is, is that accurate? Because I, I'm getting figures from professors that are saying less than 9% of the people in Ontario even earn a minimum wage. You know, this affects people who earn a minimum wage is less than 9% of the population. And of that 9%, over two-thirds of them are under the age of 25. So, again, there seems to be this misnomer about what the minimum wage is actually for. Is it to live, rent, and, and, and raise a family on, or is it to be a starter job? And, again, at the end of the day, the stats prove out that still the majority of the people that have one, they fall into the category of a starter job. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I don't, statistics that I've seen don't bear that out. More and more, we see that people working at the minimum wage or in minimum wage jobs are not what we thought they were in the past that that is students young I'm just going from what Ian Lee I'm just going from what Ian Lee Sprott School of Business Carleton University said to us and he said and and we checked these numbers out under 9% of the population in Ontario even makes a minimum wage it's it's less than 9% so you're talking about a very small percentage of the population and of that population in Ontario two-thirds of them are under the age of 25 so again I can certainly understand calls for raising the minimum wage but I think the whole mantra that you know we've got to make a living on a minimum wage is greatly distorted right but this is all you know raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour is about raising the floor of the labor market and so if you look why at don't the they just come out why don't they just at, come out and sell and say that though because it will be reflected through the rest of the labor market right and it you know be. instead we're trying to paint this like just call a, a spade a spade here instead of trying to paint this like people can't live on a minimum wage, well, you're not supposed to live on a minimum wage, and 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 less than nine percent of the population do in Ontario, and of them, they're under 25, so they're just starting out. So again, don't you think it would be better to put all the rhetoric aside and just say, hey, we're trying to raise the standard for everybody, and it starts with this, as opposed to starting to paint a picture that this won't affect anybody, that it won't cost anybody any money, that it won't do anything negative at all, which really isn't true. There's a balanced approach to this to make it work, but I think both sides are are really like way off in the field somewhere and, and not in the mainstream where everyone is. Right. So... Let's just take a step back from the question of of who's working on minimum wage. Millions of workers in Ontario are working on fifteen dollars or less. So when you raise the like you say, when you raise the floor of the labor market, when we raise that floor, that means that people on fifteen who may who might be earning fourteen fifty now or thirteen, whatever it may be, under fifteen dollars an hour. Are likely are going to see an, a wage increase to 15 or above. So it's a it's an instrument that's being used to to raise the floor of the labor market and to ensure that all workers who are now working on low wages, 15 or less, below a poverty wage, are being lifted out of poverty. And that is not just. But is it the that's objective? Just, is it the objective? Workers. I know, but is it either. the objective of minimum wage? to provide a living above the poverty line. Like, that's the whole point I got back to the original point in this discussion, is we don't have a definition of what the minimum wage is supposed to be. Some people see it, some people see it, some people, it's not political, it's a fact of life. Is the minimum wage 
uh, a starter position or is it a position that should be made uh, high enough so people can earn a living off of it? And I think that the, 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 the country is not in agreement on this in any way because I think the majority still view it as a starter job. And again, the stats you know, prove out that, you know, it's still less than 9% of the population in Ontario who are earning a minimum wage. And of them, the majority are young people. So again, when did the, when did the discussion start that, you know, minimum wage was about supporting a family and providing rent? When more and more people started living on low incomes because they're in a low wage labor market, a precarious labor market, and they're earning below $15 an hour. And that's not just young people, and that's 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 more than just young people. That's that's women. That's racialized workers. Uh, that's seniors who are working at places uh, like Walmart and McDonald's and retail. So it's not it's a misnomer that that people who are working on low wages are just young people, and it's just entry level jobs. These jobs. I, I didn't say it was just, but again, from the stats we have, it's under nine percent of the Ontario population, working population, and it's and two thirds of them are under the age of twenty five. That means a third of them are over the age of twenty five, but that's still a third of nine percent of the working force in Ontario. Right, but what I'm saying is is that, you know, if we're going to lift the, the, the low end of the labor market, if we're going to bring people out of poverty, one instrument by which we can do that is to increase the minimum wage because it has a knock-on effect that people earning below $15 an hour, when that minimum wage is increased to two, in 2019 to 15 an hour, that's going to push, that's going to lift other workers who are in the low-wage labor market uh, out of poverty, and that's important. You know, millions of people, many people are supporting a family on a wage below $15 an hour. 30% of Ontario's workers make less than $15 an hour. 10%, as you, you say, 9, I see 10% of Ontario workers currently make the minimum wage, but 30% are making less than $15 an hour. So it's never, I don't think the government has ever said. Uh, That's 30% or, of that 9%. No, 30% make less than 15 an hour of the nine percent that are that are that are making minimum wage but no 30 percent of workers 30 percent of workers are making minimum wage 10 percent of ontario workers currently make the minimum wage and 30 percent make less than 15 dollars an hour so that's what we're looking at right right i see so that's approximately one third that's that's 6.6 million workers in, in ontario of two-thirds of which are under the age of 25. No, two-thirds are not under the age of 25. That's incorrect. How old are they? Uh, well, there's, a, there's various, there's, you know, I've, I've looked up the statistics on that, but the, the age range, um, like I said, that the workers who are in a low-wage economy, uh, workers who are working in low-wage jobs, are not just young people. They're not just between the ages of 15 and 25. And it's no longer, as I said, it's no longer an entry-level job. It's a job that many people are having to survive on, and many people are struggling to make ends meet. Will they not always be there, no matter what the, what, what the, the minimum wage is? And, and I guess my follow-up question is that, where does this go? Because, again, there's Dollarama modernizing things in order to, to combat this. So what's the solution here? 
Well, Dollarama is is threatening to do this. And the question is, one, whether they're going to actually go through with it, and then what the effects of automation uh, will be. As I said before, raising the minimum wage increases aggregate demand. It means that more workers uh, at, at low incomes have money in their pockets. And those workers, unlike those who are earning high incomes, who can mm, sometimes you know, stuff that money away in, in, uh, in savings or in RSPs, uh, spend that money in the economy. And that leads to job creation. Now, if you look in the past at what's happened in other, in other sectors of the economy, like take banking, for instance. You remember when they first, if you're old enough, I'm sure, to, to, to remember when they introduced ATMs. Mm-hmm. I remember. Mm-hmm. You know, what was, what was the, the, all the hubbubaloo about that? Right? Is that ATMs introduced in the banking sector were going to lead to massive mm-hmm. uh, job loss. Mm-hmm. And that just actually hasn't been, that hasn't been borne out. Teller and other front desk bank jobs have not decreased after the introduction of the ATMs. Banks have just built more branches. Uh, they've introduced more services that, that, staff, and, that staff can handle now. Um, now, is banking work good work? I think it's still high-pressure, stressful jobs, not well compensated. I think a lot of bank workers could, could do with a union. Um, but, you know, in other sectors as well, you look at, you look at McDonald's. Um, what McDonald's has done in terms of the introduction of kiosks, which was happening before the movement for 15 and fairness. Why isn't the uh, public rebelling about. against this then? Why aren't they rebelling against the likes of Dollarama and McDonald's mm-hmm. threatening to take away jobs through automation? Uh, I, I mean, I mean, you could, people... you could, I mean, Simon, you could look at this with a mailman, with a milkman. I mean, jobs just disappear. New jobs are created. Old jobs disappear. I mean, and again, to me, none of this problem has been resolved because we still haven't come down to what the definition of a minimum wage job should be. And again, I, I think some people look at it as a starter position. Other people look at it, uh, or other people, such as advocates of yourself, think, and again, I got nothing against raising the minimum wage. I really don't. I've got nothing against that at all. Whatever helps. But again, I think we've got to be realistic in the sense that we've got to keep capitalism and socialism and left and right out of it and do what's right as opposed to, well, you got to make a living off your minimum wage job. You know, I never thought when I was pushing a broom around a Woolworths store, how am I going to raise a family on this? And I think until we have that discussion... I'm not sure how we can have all the rest of these discussions. Simon, thanks for joining us. Simon Black, Assistant Professor at Brock University's Department of Labor Studies. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. How old should your kids be before they ride the bus? This, of course, uh, all centering around the story of uh, Adrian Crook and his family. He's a Vancouver father of four uh, and the four kids, which are age 7, 8, 9, and 11, uh, they, they live in the uh, inner city, uh, don't own a car. They have, uh, obviously, transportation at their fingertips. And he has taught his kids to responsibly uh, ride the bus to school. And the 11-year-old, of course, making sure that the others uh, follow the toe, follow the lead. So this was all working fine until uh, somebody uh, phoned and complained to uh, the BC version of Children's Aid Society here. And uh, basically, they were told they had to stop doing this. 
that uh, even I don't believe there's a law in the book. We'll ask. Um, but uh, as a result, uh, this isn't being a responsible parent, apparently. Uh, Adrian Crook is with us, the Vancouver father of uh, the kids who uh, were riding the bus and is on the line with us now. And now, hi, Adrian. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. So, uh, first of all, how has this changed your life, man? What, like, what's the attention been like over the last week or so on this? Uh, I mean, it's a little exhausting. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't write that post in the hopes that it would just be forgotten or not paid any attention to, so I can't... Uh, I can't uh, disavow the attention at the same time. I think it's like spurred a really good discussion, uh, and that's all I really wanted. And uh, and then hopefully this leads to a, some sort of legal challenge for not just me, but uh, parents everywhere that have run into similar issues with ministry overreach. So when did this all happen? When did this start? So it's important to note that I started training my kids on the bus like two years ago, like fall of 2015, and I... You know, I, I wrote extensively about why I was doing it. It's, a, it's to do with, um, you know, bus transportation being the safest mode of transportation out there and raising responsible kids, independent kids, confident, that sort of stuff. And um, Yeah, it's funny how you say that sort of stuff, as if it's not important. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole, ob- that's the whole thing here, right? I mean, this is what it's all about. Anyway, I interrupted. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, exactly. And uh, so I rode the bus with, uh, with those guys for like a full year before I even contemplated, um, you know, letting them do a portion of the trip on their own. And then I let them do a portion of the trip, like the direct, the part that dropped them off right in front of their school uh, on their own for another six months before I thought about letting them do the five-minute bus ride, five-minute transfer that preceded that direct portion. So this was a very measured two-year-long process that I I didn't just wake up one morning and decide I was too lazy to take my kids to school or something. When I met with the ministry about it to get their decision at the end of the two-month investigation this past spring, they even said, like, we understand this isn't a case of negligence and this is part of your parenting philosophy. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, But it just ultimately uh, didn't matter. They even said, like, you know, you went above and beyond what any parent should be expected to do. So to me, that should be the end of the conversation. Really? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so how did this all come down? How did you even find out about this? Uh, how did you yeah. even know this was a problem? Well, it was late April on a Friday afternoon, and I just got a voicemail on my phone from the ministry. And, you know, parents, we all feel insecure in tons of different ways that we're probably not doing all the right things for our kids or everything we might be able to do. And so then you get a, you know, an email or a voicemail from the ministry, and you're just your mind races. And, uh, and, good, enjoy, and good, good luck enjoying that weekend. <laughs> yeah, oh, it was terrible. And I, when I called back, she said, I can't even tell you what it is until I meet with you on Monday. And, but she said, obviously, if it was like something where the kids were imminently in danger, you know, we'd meet with you right away. So I'm like, okay, well, obviously it can't be that bad. But, oh, um, man. Yeah. Still, <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so when they came, they came to see you? Yeah, so they sat down with me on that Monday, which I don't remember the exact date of in late, uh, late April, and, you know, let me know that they had received an anonymous complaint. And I still don't have any idea who that would have been, not that it really matters, but, uh, they, you know, the kids have been, not com- not even complaint, like report. It's not. It's also important that nothing bad happened on, in the entire two years we were taking the bus. So And the bus driver. The bus driver was obviously fine with this. Oh, yeah, and that was the other thing. Like, obviously, if, if I'm, I'm not, I don't want to ask a bus driver to babysit my kids. Like, that's just no. ridiculous. They've got a bus to drive. But I've even heard from one of them ever since this media Picked up and he texted me somehow found my number and uh, said like if you need any support like I drove your kids for a long time like be happy to you know so oh isn't that great not an issue <laughs> yeah 
So uh, basically, they came to your house. Did they interview your kids? Yeah, they uh, interviewed them separately at school. So it was, you know, another one of those things where, yeah, you know how to explain that to your kids. You don't want to coach them at all. So I didn't, obviously. Uh, and you know, now you have a stranger asking them if they feel safe in this sort of cryptic way, and it's like, man, oh my goodness, give me a break. And then at the end of this investigation, for me to have to tell my kids that, you know, uh, the freedoms that they've enjoyed, including being able to cross the street to go to the corner store or even walk when they're at their mom's house to be able to walk the few blocks to school on their own, which neither which they can do anymore, those have all been taken back. And I couldn't even provide a reason why. It's not like, oh, one of you jumped off the bus or something silly like that. Yeah. It's, like, it's just, you know, the implication is... Yeah, they, they did their part. Why are they being uh, reprimanded this way? Well, uh, and you're a single father, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I have my kids 50 Right, time. right. Yeah. So, um, so did, what did they tell you? What did they tell you you could and could not do? The exact wording of the letter that they uh, they gave me to sort of close off the investigation was that any child under 10 years old could not be left unsupervised for any amount of time inside or outside of the home. Um, so that's why it's as far reaching as just, you know, the 7-Eleven I'm looking at from my window right now. Right. I can see the whole route to the kids can't even do that anymore. So, uh, How long was the route? How long would they have been on the bus from beginning to end? Uh, like total 45 minutes. Right. Uh, you know, so... Yeah, 7.36 to 8.26, basically, so maybe 50 minutes. So uh, no one under 10 can be unaccompanied by an adult. So obviously your one child was 11. That's not enough to supervise. How old does he have to be to be able to supervise? He has to be 12. 12, yeah. So and you know, and he's time, 11 now. He's 11 now. So like next summer, not an issue for me anymore. The legal challenge that um, I'm raising money for has less to do with this family than it does uh, with all the other families I've heard from since that have had similar types of overreach scenarios. And just, I just want to say, like, I'm, the ministry is a great organization that does, like, a lot of really important work around domestic abuse and all sorts of other horrific situations. But there's a certain level of pushback that has to come in here when you've got responsible parents that have taken all the appropriate measures to train their kids and nothing bad has happened. We can't let fear instead of fact drive these certain decisions. I, I don't want to get too personal here. It's none of my yeah. business, but uh, your your past wife fine with all of this? The mother of the children fine with all of this? This was yeah. It's never it's never been a secret. I'm a, yeah. I, my five kids one condo blog. Uh, you know I I remember like I blogged about it right from day one. I mean I, you know I happily share pictures with my ex about this kind of stuff like right mm-hmm. from day one. So um, no, it wasn't something where like as soon as I started doing it, there were you know. Like flags being thrown. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. So once he turns 12 next summer. Yeah, he turns 12 next summer. So, so after yeah. that, for you, next September, it won't be an issue. He can do exactly what he's doing. Yeah. I mean, not until, like, the first three or the oldest three are outside or are off to high school, and then it becomes an issue again because about a two-year gap. <laughs> oh, so, man. You know, it's, it's totally farcical, but... Uh, you know. <laughs> uh, so what happens if they decide to ride the bus without you? Oh, I mean, if they so much as go to 7-Eleven without me or, um, you know, if they walked home from, like, sometimes during the middle of a school day, one of them will, you know, be feeling sick or something and just spontaneously decide to walk home to their mother's place. Like, those are the kind of things that can trigger, uh, like, basically a custody review in a case like this. So Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. It's, 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 it, there's, it, this is a lot more, uh, there's a, a lot more stuff to this than having, having these people bang on your door than what you think it is. Oh, absolutely. And even if it wasn't a divorce sort of situation... You could still wind up with your kids being placed in like a safer 
home if you're choosing to ignore what the ministry is telling you to do. It's not an option to just disobey them. Right. So you're not. So you. So how have you reacted to this? How do the kids get to school? What are you doing now to to solve this problem? I'm back to riding the bus with them, <laughs> which I mean, from their perspective and from mine, I love spending time sure. with the kids. So, you know, it's. It's enjoyable. It's it's a good thing I'm self-employed because I can flex my schedule a little bit to do this. But yeah. I'm having to hire a nanny for the afternoon trip for the entire year, and that'll be an expensive, you know, let's say eight or nine hundred dollars a month. Sure. Or so, um, that I just was looking forward to not having any more that sort of expense, the childcare expenses. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how are the kids reacting to this? All of this commotion. Uh, the kids are barely aware, really, of what's uh, going on from a media perspective. I try to make them aware, but we were uh, we were on our way to school today, and my oldest was more concerned with the fact that his pet rat had pooed on him. And <laughs> I'm like, no, no, I'm trying to impress upon you, like what's happening. It's important you be aware of, like, you know, he doesn't. They, you know, they participate when they want to. It's not like they're being forced into this. Uh, right. Yeah. Does anybody comment to you when they see you on the bus now? I mean, this story, I mean, it's certainly getting play across the country. It must be getting a lot in Vancouver. Yeah, and uh, it's been super nice. Like, I was on the bus the other day, like the day after the story sort of, you know, went large. And a woman said that her and her husband had been, uh, she was like, excuse me, Mr. Crook. I'm like, what's this? And she said that her and her husband had watched us on the bus for a year uh, and the kids on their own and said that they were super well behaved. And she thought it was a big issue and the barista at the Starbucks uh, who had been a social worker for 12 years she recognized me and said the same thing it's ridiculous mm. and so it's been really nice to get a lot of validation none of it is the validation I need which is from the ministry <laughs> yeah yeah but, yeah so how did you have you met people that have said yeah good thing you shouldn't be doing that have you had some that had the negative reaction I'm sure they're out there like I yeah. bet if you poured through the comments long enough you'd find them um, but I've never written anything, and I've written a few things, you know, for my blog and here and there and stuff that have gotten lots of attention, but not like this. But I've never written anything that's received such almost universal support. So that's been really encouraging. Um, but again, like I said, what I really want is that change on a on a policy level where we're making policy based on facts, and those facts are that bus travel is like 24 times safer than any other mode of travel, including cars and walking and biking. So it's literally the safest thing we could be doing with our kids, and we live in a safe Are they place. concerned about the safest way to travel, or are they concerned about the fact that your kids are young, and it's got nothing to do with the mode of safe travel, but their protection, their guidance while on the bus? Yeah, well, that's what's interesting. Like, it, I don't, I, they would immediately have no concerns if I loaded those kids into a car and drove them to school every single day. Or put them in a taxi cab. Yeah. <laughs> and the <laughs> thing is, cars are, like, you know, ages 5 to 14, the number one killer of them is cars, yeah. car accidents. So. These decisions aren't made on data. They're made on fears. And hmm. that's not acceptable. So let me ask you this question, Adrian. How did you come to the conclusion after uh, participating with them and guiding them and teaching them for however long that you did? How did you all of a sudden come to the conclusion, okay, you're ready now. I can, I can let you do this on your own. Well, it was funny because, you know, this was a two-year-long process. Like I said, I rode with them, you know, entirely for the first year. After the very first week of this process where we had sold our car because we don't, you know, we haven't owned a car for a couple of years, the very first week of the process, the kids were like, that's great. We're ready to do it on our own. <laughs> you know, kids, right? That's hilarious. Like, uh, no, you're so they're, not, so you they're totally into this. They're loving it. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. it's like anything, right? Like some days if it's rainy or cold, they're not as into it. Sure. But that doesn't mean that they're yeah. fundamentally unable to do it. Right. Um, you know, and, it's, and the thing is, like, would kids prefer ultimately to be chauffeured every single day to school? Maybe they would. They'd also prefer not to eat vegetables. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, so how much media have you done this on, on this in the city? 
Uh, you know, it's been a lot, obviously. It's, it's sort of taken over the week, um, sort of dozens of interviews, and I think it's been covered for, like, down in New Zealand. The BBC had it on their front page. Really? Um, there's been a couple, like, the, the National Post has an editorial or an op-ed for me today, and the Globe and Mail has an editorial about it today. So it's been, I think it was front page of the Toronto Star yesterday. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, what happens? Weird. What happens now, Adrian? Where does this go from here? I mean, obviously you've decided you're not going to fight with the with, with the ministry, and you're, you're going to obey what they say. You're not going to yeah. send them anyway, because oh, Lord knows where that will lead. Uh, so, so what, how do you move this forward? Yeah, I mean that's why I set up that GoFundMe um, to raise funds legally. I thought, oh, geez, if I raise a few thousand here, I'll make up the rest with my own money. But I can't. I'm not sure I can afford to go at all on my own. And I mean, it's t- taken off. I think it's at. Uh, 30 35,000 right now um including a few private donations i've received so that coupled with the i've received probably two or three hundred messages from people um every, you know lawyers with ministry experience uh ad, child advocates like mm. academics that support what's happening next week hopefully when all this dies down a bit media wise i'm going to just going to start strategizing and and figuring out what the best legal challenge uh, for everyone involved is, not just this family. So uh, let me ask you this. How has the ministry treated you in all of this? Do you have an issue with them or just the fact that they're doing their job and, and this law isn't complete? Yeah, no, I don't have an issue with how the ministry's treated me. Uh, you know, their job is not to be my best friend or anything silly like that. So, but they, And they haven't treated me poorly either. I have a issue somewhat with the fact that if you're the ministry, you have a hard time dismissing uh, a report once it's come to you, and no matter how baseless, even if the parent, as the, even as the ministry acknowledged that the parent isn't negligent and has ticked all the boxes, you still have to have to uh, basically mandate that they parent to the lowest common denominator and remove, like you said, you have to treat someone, some anonymous third party's fear, as gr- with greater weight than the parents themselves, and that's the issue I have, not how the ministry sort of behaved through this. Uh, are you worried that you're going to be uh, investigated? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Are you worried you're going to be investigated <laughs> or harassed moving forward? Because they say once these ministries get a hold of you, man, it's like good luck closing that file. Well, yeah, and you're right. They they do say that you know the file's closed and they have no follow up, and they you know like I said, they said that this was not the case of a parent being negligent. So I don't think that lingering concerns. I made it very clear that I would obey what they did. I don't think they also love the coverage this has received. Um, but on the other hand, that I want to make some level of social change with this, and you sort of have to, that classic break a few eggs to make an omelet sort of saying applies here, and I hope that uh, we can emerge the other end if like a, a better, everyone has a better relationship with the ministry, you know. So where does this solution lie, uh, Adrian? Does it lie with changing the law? With uh, Where is the solution? Yeah, and that's something I'd like to I'd like to work with the ministry to discover uh, because I think when you've got a situation where a parent has checked all the boxes and they are not being negligent, there has to be a way for the ministry to back out of that situation. There still very much is a rule, you know, if you've got a three-year-old playing unattended at a at a playground, you know, there has to be yeah. some rule for the ministry to be like, well, that doesn't make sense. You haven't, you know, he's not old enough. You couldn't have even cognitively prepared this is a person this age for this to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is still very much a role for the ministry, but I think in a case like this one where it's unobjectively, or sorry, it's objectively true that nothing bad ever happened and that all the boxes were ticked, you need a way for the ministry to be able to just dismiss a report, and that's what I'm going to test it. So obviously you've got a GoFundMe page to, uh, to to see if you can make some change here. Uh, any money involved in this, or is it just about making change? 
any money how like uh, any uh, like suing them anything like that oh geez no i, I really don't know that at all uh and i don't even know if that's it's something this legal system supports um no, so the GoFundMe page is accessed. Uh, you can probably get the link from my fivekidsonecondo.com site right, in that article. But uh, no, it's really about, I mean, you know, I'm divorced. I know how much lawyers cost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They cost a lot. You go through a lot of them. I mean, and I've heard it from a lot of lawyers in this process that are very supportive, but also know how long the timeline is. We're talking right. measured in years, uh, probably one or two years at least. And that uh, those are some lawyer bills, even with some lawyers that have offered to work pro bono as they have. Wow. So uh, at this point, you're going to take the week and sort of try to digest it and and see what's going on and then make your move from there. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like I wrote that article to generate a discussion. The discussion's still going. I I have to like serve that discussion as much as I can before getting down to actual work on this case, which uh, hopefully will happen next week. And sorry, Adrian, you have five kids in total? I do. Yeah. The youngest is five. He starts. uh, Oh, five. So he hasn't got into the picture yet. No, yeah, this was only to do with the older four. Oh. And realistically, I was going to have to ride the bus with him anyways at the start of the school year. So this only really changes, you know, the latter portion of the school year for me at, at most. But it's not really about me. It's about, uh, you know, responsible parents everywhere. Well, Adrian, uh, my hat goes off to you as uh, a parent of two. Uh, boy, oh boy, I, I can imagine what it's like with five, and I can imagine doing with that uh, what it's like in a single scenario. So kudos <laughs> to you for uh, not only doing this, but raising uh, independent and self-sustaining kids. I mean, I think that's what the objective is here. And uh, if anything, you're not a neglectful parent. You're the exact opposite. Uh, so good luck to you with all this. We'll be watching. Thanks a lot. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.